of like-minded souls who have had similar experiences. One of my first experiences with this was being pregnant for the third time with the third child, which was a great surprise. And um, <laughs> I wasn't really sure what to think about it. I wasn't necessarily thrilled about it. And as this got mentioned around the elementary school where my other children were, we live in a small town, other women started coming up to me and saying, why your child was a surprise, Jim? And they're pointing to little Jimmy going into the kindergarten class. You? Yeah, it's going to be okay. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to have this third child. Then I wrote about the experience of the unexpected pregnancy and feeling very ambivalent about it. And this was published, this was maybe one of the most private things I'd ever written because it's a little sticky subject. Everyone wants to be happy about pregnancy, and I wasn't particularly at the beginning of it. And of course, this was published on the back page of the New York Times Sunday Magazine. So my parents and all their friends read it. You know, it's really, your daughter's pregnant at age 40, and she doesn't want to be. Fantastic. Um, however, lots of people wrote to me, and we created a connection. I became part of a tribe of women who were facing ambivalence about getting pregnant, and I didn't feel alone anymore. I felt like part of this community that I was privileged to be part of that I never would have known about. Because who's going to walk up to you in the elementary school lobby and say, by the way, I wasn't sure about having Jimmy. But suddenly I was privy to this information that felt really important to me. In my case, and I literally had people whisper to me, as you did, in my case, I am the oldest of three sisters, and by the time I was 32, I was the only one living. And my memoir is about that experience and surviving that experience. And as I was touring with it and reading it in public places, afterwards, after the Q&A, when the lights were going out and people were leaving, there'd always be a few people standing by the podium, and I was, really, I was happy to talk to them, and they'd come up to me and they'd literally whisper, because my sister Sarah had said to me before she died, you know you're going to be the only one left. And people came up to me and said, you know, I'm an only one left, too. And again, like Catherine was saying, that's not something you come up to somebody and go, hi, I've had drunk. But when you start writing about it, it resonates with other people. It makes them feel differently, and it made me feel differently about telling my story. It made me feel better. Me too. So, the Whispering Tribe. So is writing about grief or trauma a natural thing to do. I think for many people it is, and I think historically it is. If you think back to the cave paintings, the, the Lascaux cave paintings, and we many, I don't know if anybody's seen them, I have not, but they're huge paintings of hunts with buffalo and saber-toothed tigers and whatever they had 17,000 years ago, and there's trauma in this. I am telling the story of Og who got trampled by the saber-toothed tiger. Or if you go back to the Old Testament, what is in there but trauma, grief, difficulty? And if you think also about um, fairy tales, fairy tales that we read our children that we grew up on. Once upon a time, a girl was locked up in a tower and had to grow her hair. Once upon a time, uh, a girl had to get out of the ball before something happened to her with her stepmother. So all these things are ways of capturing trauma and difficulty in the writer's life and in the writer's world. And there are some commonalities in trauma writings. 
the critic Sven Burkert has written an essay called Trauma and Memory. And he writes, however different the nature of the trauma itself, what the writers share in common is an impulse to represent the overcoming of the wound, whether through repair, reconciliation, or redemption. That's what the cave painters were doing, was acting on that impulse to overcome the wound. Catherine and I are both kind of fascinated with a guy named a guy, Dr. James Pennebaker. And he is a, you know about Pennebaker? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Okay, great. Well, he will appear a lot today. Uh, Pennebaker is a psychologist who studies language use at the University of Texas in Austin. And he has found in his studies that, I'm going to quote here, a student whose term paper is clunky, poorly written, incoherent, will write a trauma essay that's moving and artfully structured. So emotional writing, then, reveals the natural abilities that people have to construct stories. If you go deep inside, as opposed to writing that essay you have to write in the 10th grade, it will be much more genuine, better work. And, and naturally constructed, yes. because we're somehow naturally made to write stories of difficulty. But our other question is, is writing about conflict or trauma really good for you? Well, here's a literary perspective on that. Steve Almond, who is a fiction and nonfiction writer, wrote an article in New York Times Magazine called, Why Talk Therapy is on the Wane and Writing Workshops are on the Rise. And he says, the official job of a workshop is to help a writer improve her prose, not her psyche. But this task almost always involves a direct engagement with her inner life, as well as a demand for greater empathy and disclosure. These goals are fundamentally therapeutic. So if we go back to Pennebaker, who talks about therapy as well, he says not only did those who wrote about traumatic experience visit their doctor, their physician, less often, this is from his studies. They also reported fewer physical symptoms and, in, and exhibited enhanced immune system function. So on one hand, you're writing about something from a natural place, and that place allows your writing to flow better. But it also has a somatic, physical impact. One common quality of the story that we think as writers is that they should have a clear beginning, middle, and end. Trauma. Trauma. So you've got some awesome. What do we think about this? Okay, so the story was this alarm went off and then it stopped. And we all felt a little unsettled. Okay, story should have a clear beginning, middle, and end. We've all seen this, right? This is the basic mountain yes. triangle. And so this is our literary idea that this is what a story is. So if you have your beginning, your middle, and your end, these are coherent. They fall in a natural order and also they're written well, they appreciate and value the perspective of the reader. So the reader may be the thousands of people who are reading your bestseller, or it may be you. You are the person reading your story and looking back at what happened to you and saying, oh, I get it. I get it. Beginning, middle, and end. Why is this moving forward? I defer to you. Something I learned from you. Every ending is an applied new beginning. The ending is the ending that you make art so another way to think about ending a resolution is to call it revelation. It's the last insight, the last opening into new thinking that you can offer your reader. Revelation. Revelation. Vertical pronoun. Okay, the vertical pronoun. This is a term that Robin Henley, who's the director of the nonfiction program here at Iowa, uses to describe the word I. 
yourself, you're making it physical. Uh, here I am in the center of my world. So I wanted to point that out in addition to how we see it on the page. Because I like the physicality, the visualness of language. So we often write trauma stories, especially nonfiction, in the first person, using that vertical pronoun, the I. And the challenge of the first person is always to reach beyond that individual mind to create a world that's not self-centered. Trauma stories are by their very nature self-centered. This happened to me. But to widen the world, to make the story universal, to be a good guide to the story, a good narrator, and to your descent into hell, it's necessary to place the character of yourself in the wider world. As William Zinser says, every good memoirist puts himself in context. When you said descent into hell, it's not. Well, it's that. Yeah. Yeah, and, and in some ways, trauma stories are, of course, the heroic journey, the daunting journey into hell emerging with some new wisdom or insight on the other end. Yes. You as a memoirist, you as a writer, not only nonfiction, although I think that's largely what we're dealing with here, but you as a writer and your trauma, your grief, exist in a wider world. Perhaps it was caused by a wider world event. Here you are sitting in your chair today, surrounded by other people in the city where an alarm went off, so there is a wider world in which your story exists, and that's one of the pieces <coughs> So that's the literary reason for reaching beyond the first person. But we've also found therapeutic reasons for reaching beyond the first person when writing about trauma. Our friend Pennebaker found that people who are depressed use the first person pronouns, I, me, my, at much higher rates than non-depressed individuals. When people say I, they're paying attention to themselves. And when they use other pronouns, he, she, they, he, now, he's not telling us you can't use I. He found something really interesting. He learned that the more people change their use of pronouns from day to day in their writing, the more their health improved. It doesn't matter if people oscillate between an I focus to a we or a them focus or vice versa. Rather, health improvements merely reflect the change in the orientation and personal attention of the writer. I love one day, and the next day when you're writing your story, think about using they, she, he, or we to make it a more universal story. And all Pennebaker found is that moving back and forth in emphasis from that vertical pronoun I to the other pronouns resulted in better health. So I think we're going to make y'all do it now. Yes. Yes. You want some cards? I'm going to hold the cards. You are, and I'm going to ask y'all to play Let's Write a Scene. Uh, let's see. First of all, we need a, a second. Somebody give me just randomly a setting. Somebody just shout out a setting. What is that? Coffee shop. A coffee a shop. A coffee shop. Okay, great. Now, give me a trauma that takes place in that coffee shop someone else. We're in a coffee shop, something bad happens. Someone's choked. Someone spills coffee. Somebody's choked, someone spilled coffee?
Somebody else. Or E. about I hit her, the way you live in the world 
and how you interpret what happened and why. If you have a scene in which I hit her, I, the author, depending on who I am, am I me, am I you, am I someone else, I'm going to have a different substantive reason for the hitting. So I had a student, I teach undergrads at a couple of different colleges, and I had a student who was having a hard time writing about an argument he was having with his serious girlfriend. And he just couldn't get it right. He, he didn't feel like he was going anywhere on the page with this argument that meant a lot to him. It was some kind of serious issue in their household. So I'm going to be just for the teacher. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to say, well, what's your story about? What are you writing about? We had an argument. I'm a student. We had an argument. She won't listen to me. That's nominal. My student and his girlfriend are having an argument. And you're having trouble writing about it. Is this because it means more to you than you're letting yourself see? Copy that. Copy that? You know, I can't stop talking in military speak. I've just come back from Iraq, and I've been a radio operator, and I just can't get that kind of quick functional speech out of my head. That's just the only way I can talk and write. That's combat mode. That's the substantive. That's what's really going on. Why he can't write about this fight with his girlfriend with any depth, perhaps why he's even fighting with his girlfriend because he's re-entering the civilian world in a number of reasons. Nominal, substantive. And the great because makes the story meaningful, makes it coherent, makes it whole. Now this is also true therapeutically. And we're going back to Penna Baker, because we love Penna Baker, and many people too. Maybe you'll go find his books. And here's a quote about causality. There's evidence to suggest that the use of certain cognitive words, those associated with causality, like because and reason, and insight, words like understand and realize, are linked to improved health. Interestingly, the actual level of usage of these words is not important. Rather, the people who increase in their use of these cognitive categories from the first to the last day of writing are the ones who benefit. Those who are changing in the ways they are thinking about their emotional upheavals are the ones most likely to benefit. So say on Monday, you come here and you start writing, and you're using because and understand and realize a certain number of times in your writing, a few times, many times, whatever that level is, the more of those words you use over the course of the week, the more health benefit you will get. So, per yes. <laughs> so, so a person who is depressed, and we're not here to diagnose you, we're just sort of caring forward what Pennebaker says, a person who is depressed tells the same story the same way over and over. A person who is perhaps healthier tells a story that grows, and in that allows them to grow. And as Pennebaker concludes, constructing a story is more important than having a story. Mm -hmm. So you explore and you shift, as you write, some of the ways you conceptualize how you're telling your story, the ways in which you tell your story, which I think is what we're going to work on. We are, and there's one example that struck me recently from Carolyn Knapp's memoir, Drinking a Love Story. She remembers something that her father said to her, and he said, insight is almost always a rearrangement of fact. Okay, so that great. she sat in her boyfriend's kitchen one morning, feeling paralyzed and upset, she remembered those words, a rearrangement of fact. And here are the facts of Carolyn Knapp's life Fact one, I drank too much. Fact two, I was desperately unhappy. I had always thought I'd 
know. Do I do yoga because it centers me, or am I centered because I do yoga? Don't know. It's kind of like taking a telescope and looking through the wrong end, and then the right end, for that matter, what is right and what is wrong. But if you take a telescope and you look the way it's supposed to be done, you see the moon one way. Turn it around, there's the moon, it's still there, but you're going to be seeing it and perceiving it in a really different way. And that's part of the story as well, is how you perceive it. And you might also use the metaphor of a telescope to understand your story, to reconstruct your story. A metaphor allows you new ways of distancing yourself from your story, conceiving of it, giving you a new perspective. As an example, if you had to think of your story or your life in terms of a game, would it be monopoly? Shoots and ladders. That's actually <laughs> Oh, I don't know, Twister. Hide and seek. <laughs> She's getting to add me, yeah. <laughs> duck, duck, goose.
also do is move around with time. How time, I mean, time passes in the standard order. We know that 60 seconds makes a minute. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I almost have to stop. I'm like, does 60 minutes make a second? I don't know. Uh, 60 seconds makes a minute. But I, we want to give you a take. We're not letting it go yet, but we want to give you a take home assignment that you might want to try on your own, which is try to write one paragraph about a 24 hour period. These require sensory details, they require compression. So a paragraph about a 24-hour period? Or a page about five minutes. Yeah. And try to change the level of detail and the way that you're changing the story. Just to fool with how you as a writer, just to experiment and explore how you as a writer can manipulate time on the page to change your perspective and your reader's perspective about the and in fact, when we experience trauma, bless you, we often go into a state of hyperarousal or supersensory awareness. We can use that in our writing to create incredibly detailed memories that allow our readers and ourselves to understand what happened. And there's neurological basis for this, which we can talk to you about afterwards, but there is a natural physiological reason that you've got that kind of like time passed so slowly when this happened. I mean, time passes as it passes, but your brain interprets it, your body interprets it differently. So maybe I should read the Eagleman quote. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so David Eagleman, who's a professor at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, says, one of the seats of emotion and memory in the brain is the amygdala. When something threatens your life, this area seems to tick into overdrive, recording every last detail of the experience. The more detailed the memory, the longer the moment seems to last. This explains why we think that time speeds up when we grow older, Eagleman writes, why childhood summers seem to go on forever, while old age slips by while we're dozing. The more familiar the world becomes, the less information your brain writes down, and the more quickly time seems to pass. And he says time is this rubbery thing, using a metaphor. It stretches out when you really turn your brain resources on, and when you say, Oh, I got this. Everything's expected. It shrinks up. So if you think about the fact that your brain kind of, you know, when you get used to taking in information, that's when time sort of, you know, what does he say? Old age slips by when you're dozing. So the more exploration you do in your writing, the more exploring, noticing, making new connections, you're turning your brain resources on, which will come across to you and to your reader. Because good writing isn't just Telling the novel, I think, or the end. Good writing is exploratory. It's not just a rehash of the known story. I hit it at the end. So an essay, those of you who study essay, the whole concept of essay is to move forward, to explore, to step out. And that applies as well to memoir, nonfiction, and fiction. Um, well, Patricia Hamble. Sorry, got my space out. Patricia Hamble did an interview with a magazine called the AWP. Chronicle. She 
is it negative or is it an element of li of literary writing? I, the question I think is how well written is it? How how often? Well, does it really explore grief and difficulty, or does yes. it avoid it? Very much. Yes. And we don't want to avoid it. And in yes. writing about trauma, we want to fully articulate the experience and not gloss over it. Well, oh, go ahead, green shirt. No, I would say even when you say it, even in a certain tone, it's still a matter of perspective. A matter of perspective? Yes, because different actors deliver the line in very different ways. Oh. Even using the same tone of voice, there, yeah. the, there's subtleties there. That's a good actor to deliver the subtleties. So then yes. how does that translate to the page in terms of just the written words now is the winter of our discontent? Interpreted differently yeah. by everyone who reads it, which goes back to the yeah. idea of reaching out to your reader, how you use words to connect with your reader. The Shakespeare nerd has to come in here and say, well, okay, yeah. okay that's, that's not the whole sentence. Of course not. And, and the whole sentence is, now is the winter of our discontent, made summer by the sun of whatever. Made glorious summer. Made glorious summer. Made glorious, yes. And, and so the, 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 it's half of a sentence which is expressing uh, actually fake joy. Yeah. Um, because Richard is lying, as usual. Mm -hmm. so, um, <laughs> so, so that you know, the winter of our discontent is actually deployed specifically to launch to be encouraging. Yeah, and and so you know, he's not he's not dealing with grief; he's dealing with fake joy. Um, and so, yeah. Yes. Point. I just wanted to comment when you say you make a statement, a black statement, like. I am sad. That goes along almost with opposition, a flat affect. Yes. It's not moving. Whereas if you say I am not happy, there is some motion, there's some activity that's implied. It contains an opposition, which is dynamic. Right. I am not happy right. versus I am this one thing. And if every piece of writing has got a beginning, middle, and an end, has got forward motion in some way, it is that dynamism within the sentence that on a sentence level moves the writer through those mixed emotions into glorious summer, however you want to take it. So if you have a simple concept that uses negative words, and I'm using negative possibly in a pejorative way, but let's take it for what it is, that's one thing that leaves you stuck. Whereas dynamism in the sentence moves the reader, the story, and you, the author, to glorious summer to take from. Yeah, it's interesting to think of Mr. Shakespeare existing at that sentence level just by using not happy versus I am sad. Because in a screenplay, for example, every scene needs a conflict, right? And if you can get those conflicts started at the sentence level, you're creating a dynamic right away in scene. We've all seen movies or read books, for that matter, where you're going through and you're going, Anytime anybody wants something to happen, I'm good, right? <laughs> okay, so. Yes. Um, I'm a dancer, dance instructor. Yeah, flower dance, actually. So the theme of this whole thing is. And just in thinking about this kind of concept, dance involves both a position. So I will tell you, in Rumba, you need to be in a fifth position at a certain point, and the movement between positions. And I'm not dancing if I leave out one or the all characters go through a dance. And therefore, I am sad is 
is you brought in metaphor into your discussion, which makes physical, on the, in the person's mind, in the reader's mind, makes physical the trauma, makes physical the process through the trauma. We're talking earlier about um, kids and art therapy and trauma, right? Mm -hmm. How they use an art therapy, a psychologist might use a doll to help a child point out where abuse happened, or have a kid paint a picture of something, and, and it's their house, but it doesn't look like a house, but it does a kid, and painting. So it creates a physical element, tangible physical, that they can move through, that represents, you could write about as a dance, or something. Okay. So, as, as, I'm yeah. sorry, as long as we're in the peer-reviewed literature, I mean, John Baker is fascinating, but it's the first step, and we don't have a clue how it works, and it'll be hundreds of years, and people 500 years from now will be laughing at our, our, our attempts to make sense of this, like, phlogiston. And, but, but one of the other things out there is that people are doing a lot of work with cancer patients. And what they discover is, and again, this is not definitive, but what they discover is there's good reason to believe that if you get a bunch of depressed cancer patients and ask them about how their disease is going to progress, and you get a bunch of non-depressed cancer patients, the cancer patients will be accurate, the depressed ones will be accurate, and the undepressed ones will be deluded about the course of their illness. And so, so there's a sort of causality problem there, right? You know, maybe they die because they're depressed. Try telling that to people with advanced HIV, by the way. But, um, you know, and, and so there's a sort of, and, but I want to get back to the literary because it seems to me that what's happening in those circumstances with the, the not, when we call people depressed and give them drugs and, and tell them to get over it, is that we want a particular resolution to this story. We want a formed narrative. We want a yeah. reformed narrative. Yeah, we want, we want either the, I liked it, or we want the, I'm so grateful I got cancer to talk me the meaning of life. And, and those are your two alternatives. And well, if you yeah, try to write yeah. a memoir where you end up with, I have a chronic life-shortening disease that hurts like a bitch and it sucks, uh, then people aren't going to like it. But which of these stories are more accurate? I would say the last. Me too. Yeah. And well, Barbara Ehrenreich's uh, long essay, Welcome to Cancer Man, takes on, for her, the offensiveness of the pink culture of happy cancer. It's a wonderful essay if you care to read it, and, and it goes just in that direction. And I don't think, by the way, that Pennebaker is recommending that anybody be yeah. happy or gloss over. He says he's not. He's simply finding. Yeah, yeah. talking about the He's simply finding the frequency of the use of positive versus negative words in an account of a trauma, and seeing how that affects people's well-being. So he's looking at it from a purely dialectical standpoint. You know, he's looking at it as data. And the Pennebaker website. Yes, is. Uh, if you go on this Pennebaker website, it's a lot of fun. You can type an account of something, and he'll have his language analyzer analyze it for you. So we can't replicate that here in, in lecture format, but if you go on the website, you can do that. And he has this program called the Loop, the L-I-W-C, that analyzes the frequency of certain words. And it claims to be able to tell you something about your personality type or your sense of well-being, a variety of exercises. So this might be entertaining for you. And yes, our context is one of the unknown. We don't really know everything yet about language or what it means. But so this is what we have to contend with. Uh, 
Yeah, it's P E N N E B A K E R. Like penne pasta? Because uh, baker. Penne baker. Penne baker. The secret life of pronouns.com. One more question up there, yeah.